In Genesis 1, we read, So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What does that really mean? That together, as male and female, we reflect the image of God. I won't lie, this is a big and controversial topic, and all we can promise is that we won't cover it in one service. Today, we're not looking at gender stereotypes. We're not asking who's better, boys or girls. We're not discussing male and female roles within the family, the church, or wider society. We're not responding to the Church of England's Living in Love and Faith project. Instead, as part of this series on our beautiful broken bodies, we are asking what it means to be created equal but different. Some of us have two X chromosomes. Some of us have one X and one Y. We're going to see that of all the ways in which we experience our bodies as beautiful and broken, none is as potentially powerful or degradingly destructive as our sexual selves. And we're going to start with the broken. I've never heard a sermon on the passage we're about to hear. Having prepared this sermon, I now know why. It is appalling, but it rings alarmingly true. It's not in the Bible because it gets God's approval. It's here as a warning against the greed, the self-absorption, the cold fury of unrestrained lust. The reading from 2 Samuel 13 records the rape of Tamar by her half-brother Amnon. Afterwards, I will be reflecting on what it reveals about how broken and destructive our sexual desires can be. Sue will also be speaking in this service about our second reading from the wonderful Song of Songs. Sue and I will be leading a Q&A immediately after this service, but also available if anyone wants to chat individually. This morning's reading is 2 Samuel chapter 13 verses 1 to 22. Amnon and Tamar. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I may watch her and then eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, 
I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight, so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother, her brother Amnon, in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some background. David is king of Israel. We know him largely as a giant slaying hero, a poet, a musician, and an adulterer and a murderer. Early in his reign, David had taken possession of a woman in Jerusalem called Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah to clear the way to marrying her, with Bathsheba powerless to stop him. Amnon, was King David's firstborn son. His mother was called Ahinoam. Tamar was King David's daughter with another mother. So Tamar and Amnon are half-siblings. Tamar has a whole brother called Absalom. The account starts with Amnon falling in love with his sister Tamar. We can acknowledge that none of us has complete control over who we fall in love with. But we can decide to feed 
or starve such feelings when we know they're impossible or not reciprocated. What does Amnon do? He makes himself ill because he's so obsessed with his sister Tamar. But did you hear how the Bible writer describes his yearning? He wants to do something to her. She has become an object of his lust, something to be owned, to be had. So Amnon, with the most awful and manipulative advice from a dodgy friend, concocts his ridiculous plan to get Tamar alone into his bedroom. His father, the king, agrees to his plan when it was blindingly obvious what Amnon was up to. David has disastrous form as a man, led by his own entitlement and unrestrained desire. Now he's complicit in his son doing the same. This should come as a warning to all of us fathers. Our sons and our daughters are watching and listening. But what are they learning from us? Amnon's plan works. Tamar innocently arrives. He sends everyone else away. His plan to get her alone has worked. Maybe he'd never considered quite what would happen next. Maybe he'd assumed her compliance, her enthusiasm even. He certainly wasn't thinking straight. So he grabs her and pulls her towards the bed. Tamar could not have been clearer. Did you hear her? Did you hear what she said? No, my brother. Don't force me. We don't do this in Israel. It's not who we are. This is wicked. Think about the consequences for me and for you. Speak to the king. But Amnon is not listening. He'd obsessed, he'd planned, he'd lied his way to this moment. He could only see what he wanted in this moment. It wasn't even really about sex anymore. It was about his will, his entitled desire. He's deaf to her pleas. He's blind to her refusal. He's oblivious to self-control or beauty or playfulness. So he rapes her. The Bible reading spares us any more detail. We don't want it. His toxic, self-absorbed lust defiles her and ruins him. We might have hoped for contrition or a flash of self-knowledge. Instead, we only get a further outpouring of loathing over her. And the horror of this story only deepens as all the people who should have done something do nothing or worse. Amnon throws her out of the palace to face ruin for his crime. Absalom, Tamar's whole brother, urges her to stay quiet and lie, lie, lie low. Don't make a fuss, dearest sister. There, there. And King David fails too. David feels the right thing, fury, but he does nothing. He lets it go. He's complicit too. What can we do but pause and lament together?
there are myriad ways in which God's gift of sexual intimacy and gift of a covenant relationship between male and female to beautify and enrich and contain it, it's broken, it's kaput. Rape is one of the most horrific. It is still endemic in our culture. Whatever lies we tell ourselves about sexual liberation, the vast, vast majority of rape victims are women, women who know their abuser. Rape is also used as a brutal and devastating weapon of war. Think back to the Balkans or the war in Congo. Rape still destroys. It's still hushed up. It's still excused. Sue is going in a few minutes to help us see that our sexual side is, in fact, a winning part of our being designed classics. This capacity, this joy, this covenant union, this fabulous way of creating new life and expressing self-giving love is a gift. But speaking as a man, I must urge all my brothers to humility and gentleness and self-control. These are vital things that whether you're married or not, there is something broken in us, the ease with which we objectify, the lies and deceit we undertake, the entitlement that demands sex on our terms only, the greed that we feed and justify, the havoc we unleash. How did we settle for so little? Lord, have mercy. One of our mission partners, Rach Mutezi, lives and works in Kampala. She has had enough of the sexual violence that blights the city. Here's what Rach has to say. When justice prevails and there's peace in this nation, children will thrive and their families will rise. The future will shine. That's my dream for I want to become an artist. I want to paint and hopefully someday I can expose my pain. I want to compose a song, maybe then my countrymen will listen. I have bought my clothes to forge an artist's look. And I have dangling earrings, so probably you will see me. But I hope that when you look at me, you will see beyond the smile and for it once a look. I hope you see the young people in my country who are secretly and silently dying because of child sexual abuse. You are right. These are no physical deaths. Sometimes I wish it was so. Probably then you would be moved to help. Defilement, molestation, teenage pregnancies, early marriages, as well as fitsulas are our new normal. Our communities have normalized sexual abuse and we blindly look on. Nowhere is safe 
Our safe spaces have let us down. Our safe people have let us down. Our communities are eating up our children instead of raising them. What will you benefit from reporting this case is how rape and aggravated defilement cases are buried. So, so today, today we, we won't demand protection, protection of our rights because, because that's a far-fetched dream. Today, today we shall plead for mercy. Perhaps you'll hear our faintest cry. Oh, mercy. Mercy is what we need. I'll sing a song, I'll paint with a brush, I'll play my flute, and hopefully you'll hear my faintest cry. Because mercy. Oh, mercy is what we need. Oh, mana Africa. Simon and also Rachel have helped us see just how broken our sexuality can be. Sometimes we're so aware of how much pain and distress is related to this part of our humanity. We can even wonder why God made us with such sexual desires and appetites in the first place. So we're now going to take a little bit of time to reflect positively on our sexuality. We're going to hear a few lines from a love song, because that is what the Song of Songs is, a love song. And as with any form of art, there is no one simple meaning to what we will hear. Rather, there are layers of meaning and much allegory and poetic imagery, some of which may sound quite alien to our ears. I certainly won't be asking my hairdresser to go for the goats running down a mountainside look. But as we listen to these verses, let's use our God-given imagination. Let's imagine for a moment that we are hearing this sung. Perhaps it's helpful to imagine it being sung at a joyful Jewish wedding or as part of a great religious festival like the Passover. And as we imagine it being sung, we recognise that it's not simply a song sung over us, but it is a song that is about us, about who we are as we relate to one another and who we are as we relate to God. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves, 
by the water streams washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory, decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble, set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn, that we may look for him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, and to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is missing. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favourite of the one who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. Thank you, Tim, Fiona and Rianne. This ancient song is a song about us, even us, here and now, in our 21st century world. First and foremost, it's a celebration of who we are as sexual human beings. It celebrates the love and attraction and longing and desire that is common to us all, that is part of what makes us human. And there's nothing coy or shy about this song. It's a passionate acknowledgement of the erotic urges and impulses that make us who we are. And as a divinely inspired piece of art, there are layers of meaning to the song. It can be read and understood on many different levels. When I'm walking in the mountains with Mark, I'm often struck by how many summits there are in our walk. Just when I think I've reached the top, I realize there is another peak to climb. And it can be a little bit like that when we read scripture. As we read it, we see one meaning and context, but the further we delve into it, the greater the vistas that open up to us. So at first reading, this is a love song between Solomon, the king, and his beloved. In beautiful poetry, it describes this strange, complex dance that is sexual attraction. It's a song of a relationship that is exhilarating in its freedom, but never casual or indulgent. It speaks of embrace and retreat, of hiding and being found, of frustration and satisfaction. It's a song about an ordinary relationship, 
one that is full of twists and turns, misunderstandings, upsets and joyful reunions. And it's a song about a relationship that is firmly established in the whole community. It's not just about the couple themselves. This song can also be understood as a song about Israel, the people of God, and their love for the Torah, the law of God. It's thought that it was read aloud during the Passover festival, so over time it could have developed to become a song that celebrates the covenant of love that God established with his people through the exodus and the giving of the law. When we read it today, as followers of Jesus, we read it with our post-resurrection perspective. Those of us who know Christ, who are known by him, can identify ourselves in this song as his beloved bride. So, over and above all, there is one message that comes out loud and clear from this song. God is a God of love, and he made us physical, sexual, passionately creative humans in order to love him and one another. The song shows us that there is a relationship between the physical and the spiritual that is wholly positive. That desire for intimacy, human and divine, are inextricably linked. Within each of us is a deep longing to be connected to another. We were made for relationship. And this might never be a sexually active relationship. Intimacy can be shared in many different ways, as the song suggests with its reference to friends and siblings. But we must always remember, however wonderful and enriching our human relationships are, they're only a dim reflection of the intimacy and connection that comes from a relationship with God. The Bible affirms this, and so must we. During this whole series, we have been affirming that we are made by God, that we are his handiwork, his masterpieces. And as his creations, we give him glory. I think sometimes we believe this about our minds, our wills, our talents or our abilities. We believe that they can give glory to God. But perhaps we don't really believe that about our physical bodies, our sexuality. We've not seen our sexuality as something glorious and wonderful. More often than not, it can feel problematic. Perhaps it's something that we see as drawing us away from God rather than towards him. Sexual passion and holy living are very often seen as opposites in conflict with one another rather than as gifts, both of which are given to us by our gracious God. Someone once said, there is in passion a power that holiness needs. So our sexuality is part of God's good creation and as God's beautiful creatures, he delights in us. He delights in who we are, not just mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but also physically, 
The song is quite explicit at times about celebrating the human form. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, your breasts are like two fawns, your neck is like an ivory tower. This delight and enjoyment that we get from having physical bodies, again, it is a gift from God who also delights in us. And the thing I notice when I read the song is that there's no shame in it. It celebrates physical love in a wonderfully unabashed and shameless way. There is no embarrassment in the song. Human bodies and sexuality are to be celebrated. I wonder if we see ourselves and others as objects of delight. I wonder how we can talk about our bodies and our sexuality in such a way that reflects this, that reflects how God sees us. So this song paints a picture of human sexuality that is perhaps far from what we see around us or within us. We have heard from Simon of the brokenness that is all too apparent in our families and communities. And we're all affected by this. Many of us feel confused or anxious or distressed about this. So can I reiterate again that Simon and I are available to talk to anyone at all about whatever they want to. And you can contact us by email. Our email addresses are up on the screen. And or you could just phone the office and ask to speak to us. We do have time for this and we don't want anyone to be sitting with something and not feel like they can talk to us or talk to someone about it. What this strange ancient song does for us is that it points us to a God who understands it all. God made us and he loves us. He loves us so much he took on our flesh, our physicality, our deepest desires and longings. And by becoming one of us, he is able to redeem all that is broken within us and around us. Ultimately, the song is a celebration of salvation, full of beauty and wonder and fruitfulness. It's a song about homecoming. God has given us beautiful bodies, whatever we think about them, to give glory to him. Yes, they are broken. We are living this side of heaven where we and our world are not perfect. But this song points to a way of life, a way of being, that looks forward to the greatest celebration of love, we, of love we will ever know, the greatest intimacy, the greatest delight, the greatest consummation of all things. This is what God is calling us into. He is calling us as his beloved, beautiful, broken body, the church, into this life of intimacy and love. Amen.